Isaiah 42 is our text this morning. Take a Bible from somewhere and turn to that if you are able. Isaiah 42. The whole first half of this book, as many of you know, is primarily concerned with God's judgment. His judgment on Israel and Judah. His judgment on the surrounding nations of the world in their day. And his judgment on the entire population of the globe, all of humanity. And all of this for sin, for the sins of God's people against him, for the sins of wicked men in ignoring and rebelling against him, the Lord would bring, Isaiah said, his righteous wrath and judgment upon those peoples. And the section ended with really the great culmination of all of God's judgments upon the nation of Judah. And in the end of chapter 39, we saw predicted that that nation would be invaded by a hostile army, that God's temple would be ransacked and ruined, that the holy city would be destroyed and burned to the ground, that the walls of the city would be torn down and the city burned with fire, its kings deposed, its people carried away into captivity in a strange land for years to come. And that happened exactly as the Lord predicted. And by the way, it is a reminder, it is a historical reminder to all of us that God always punishes sin. That no sin goes unpunished. No injustice against himself goes undealt with. Whether it is his judgment in this life, or most certainly and most fully, his judgment in the life to come. The captivity of Israel was the judgment of God. But do you know that a single event in the providence of God can actually serve a dual purpose? Are we all familiar with that? The way that God works that way? And so this act was on the one hand a punishment a condemnation, a display of God's wrath against a rebellious, apostate people. But at the same time, it was a chastening, a corrective discipline of those who were his. We saw that kind of thing being described earlier in the reading from the book of Hebrews, didn't we? And That was true for the people of Judah because there were two different kinds of people within Judah and really within any community. Within that nation, there were those who were of the world, those who were unconverted. And for them, God's judgment fell as a just and appropriate recompense for their deeds. But within that, People, there were also those who were truly the Lord's. And for them, what was this experience of the exile? What was the captivity for them? It was, it was something else, right? Because their just 
punishment would not be absorbed in, in their judgment and captivity under the wrath of God, but their just punishment would be absorbed in the Messiah who would die in their place, who would satisfy the wrath of God for them. And we may both experience judgment, that is, those people who are under the wrath of God and those people who are the Lord's people, whose wrath is taken by Christ, we may both experience God's judgment for our sins, but it is for different ends, for different purposes. And I can't think of any passage in the Bible that parses out these purposes in one succinct statement any better than 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20, 32, when the Lord, through the apostle, speaking to believers, says, when we are judged by the Lord, now do you know that? Believers are judged by the Lord. But he says, now when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There is a judgment of God that comes, and sometimes it comes upon a whole people, a whole community, a whole culture, a whole nation. And on the one hand, it is a condemnation of the world, and on the other, it is a discipline, a correction, a chastening of God upon His people. And discipline and correction and condemnation, on the other hand, may both look similar. They may both feel similar for a while. But they are as different as a mother sending her disobedient child to time out is from a judge sentencing a criminal to life in prison. And sometimes it's hard to sort out what exactly God is doing because sometimes both of those kinds of people both name the name of Christ. And so you have within the same broader Christianized sort of culture both kinds of people. You have within the same religious community both those who are of the world and those who truly belong to the Lord. And sometimes even within the same local church. For the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Well, in Judah, there were many who were unconverted. They just were not the Lord's. But there were also those who were truly His. His dear children. Sinful. Yes, like you and like me, but the Lord's dear children. And it's important, I think, to make this distinction, among other reasons for this, because I'm preaching this sermon not merely to explain a text, but to, to move us to respond, to appropriate this. And the danger always is, when you preach a text like this, that someone may hear and misappropriate it. And I want to urge us all to be wary lest we misappropriate this passage to ourselves when it is for those who are truly God's children 
Is that really true of you? Are you a genuine child of God by faith? Is there really ongoing repentance of sin and trust in Jesus Christ? Is the gospel making a difference in your life? All right? So there is a danger of misappropriating it, but I think the real point of this passage is for the encouragement of those who are God's people, for the strengthening of their souls, especially when they find themselves under his chastening rod, under his hand of discipline, under his difficult providences meant to expose their sin and correct their ungodliness and restore them to a place of uprightness again. This passage, I say, is given for our hope. And I trust that the majority of you that I'm speaking to this morning are the Lord's people. Sinners by nature, but children of God by grace, with sin that clings so closely still, and recipients of, yes, the chastening kindness of a loving Father. Now, there are three parts to the text, and we're going to cover chapter 42, Lord willing, we're going to cover chapter 42, verse 13, to chapter 43, verse 7. And I say there's three sections here, and it's kind of like a sandwich, right, with your two pieces of bread and then your good old thick layer of peanut butter and jelly in the middle. It's kind of like that. And on the two ends, there is hope. And in the middle, there is a reminder of God's chastening judgment upon the people. And here's the way it works out. Verses 13 to 17 in chapter 42, we see a promise of restoration for a chastised people. The promise of restoration. And then in verses 18 to 24, the Lord goes back and really identifies the cause of their suffering. What is the cause of their suffering? But then he comes back again in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 43, and he gives them once more an assurance of his grace to them, even in their chastised state. So let us hear what the Lord has for us today. First of all, taking note of the promise to God's people of restoration. And this would have been read for the encouragement of God's people for generations to come, right? Isaiah is ministering 700s B.C., but his word of encouragement here is going to echo throughout, down through the centuries for the encouragement of God's people generation after generation when they are languishing in captivity. It will be for their encouragement. When they are left without a prophetic word from God, it is for their encouragement. When they are under His chastening, it is for their encouragement. And so may it be for us today, beginning in verse 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, a man of war. Like a man of war, He stirs up His zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows Himself mighty against His foes. Verse 14, for a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. 
I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation, and I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and the rough places into level ground. These things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. A word of comfort, isn't it? A word of hope and promise, of restoration, of God leading his people out of darkness and into light, of his making the rough places smooth and overcoming all of the obstacles that stand in their way to bring them to a place of blessing because he will not forsake them. It's a sweet passage. And in the beginning here, verses 13 and 14, there are two images of the Lord, right? We don't want to read over these quickly, meditate on them. These images reveal something about God. And in the first case, in verse 13, he's pictured as a mighty warrior. You picture the character of your God as being that of a mighty warrior. You know, some people can't picture that. All they picture is a meek and mild sort of um, Jesus. That's and, and there is certainly a meekness and a gentleness to our Savior. But he is a mighty warrior. That's the picture here. Who rouses himself against his enemies. Why do you think the people needed that kind of image of God when they're languishing for under the judgment of God and under the boot of their enemies and in captivity in a foreign land under the worship of false God. Why do they need this image of God? Because they're in a situation, friends, that humanly speaking seems impossible. It's impossible that we will ever get out of here and get back to the land and, and worship God again in the, in the place where he has set his name. How in the world, I mean, how in the world can that literally ever happen? I mean, just... Think about where they are and what their situation was, because it's not the same for us. Um, They're under the domination of a hostile monarch, an absolute ruler. Let me ask you this. Did they ever ask themselves, how in the world is this monarch who has destroyed our land and carried us away in captivity, how is he ever going to change his mind and we'll be able to go back? That'll never happen, right? that's just unthinkable. And, and if, we, if, if for some reason we were able to escape, how would we ever make it? You know, this journey from Babylon to Persia, uh, Babylon and Persia to Jerusalem, uh, was, uh, well, I think with Ezra, it took like four months. Four months. Can you imagine going on a journey for four months? And you're going to take with you your elderly and your children. And along the way, there's no restaurants. And there's no hotels. And there are mountains. And there are rivers. Well, we, we drive over rivers all the time. We don't even think about it. We just drive over the bridge. I mean, rivers to cross. And enemies along the way. And wild beasts and deserts and lack of food. And I mean, it's just impossible. How is this ever going to happen? And if we didn't finally manage somehow to get back to the land, how would we ever survive? The entire city is in ruins. Everything's been burned. All the fields lay fallow. There's no crops when we get there. There's nothing to sustain us there. 
I mean, it is literally and utterly impossible. There's just no way. There's no hope in this. And I think it's exactly in those times that God people need to see a picture of a mighty warrior able to rouse himself against every obstacle, right? That's what you need to see sometimes. Because there are times when God's people face humanly impossible situations. Maybe powerful opposition and persecution that's coming upon that particular people, and it seems like there is no way to stop it, to reverse that. Or a a bondage to sin that seems impossible to break. It's just got a death grip on that believer. And he's saying to himself, how can it ever be that I will have hope to be delivered from this? And the answer is to look to the one who is the mighty warrior. And then in verse 14, there's another picture. It's a very different picture. Uh, in, in some ways, they're the same because there's a lot of yelling. <laughs> but in this case, it's not the, the shouts of a warrior. It's the screams of a woman giving birth, right? It's a birthing mother. So we move from a God who is a mighty warrior to a a mother. (laughs) What a contrast. You know, the Lord is both mighty and merciful. He's Jesus strong and kind. And the picture here is of the Lord giving new birth, new, new life to a people. That they're coming to life. And is it too much to say that like a mother, that new life would come at great pain to himself? But what's particularly emphasized here in verse 14 is actually the, well, you look at it. What's emphasized in terms of um, a mother and giving birth? And notice how the verse starts. I think what's emphasized is the timing of this, right? Pregnancies aren't brought to term in a a moment. (laughs) Sometimes maybe you ladies might wish it were that way. Um, But there's a long period of gestation where this life is being developed, it's being grown, it's being shaped. And that's what's taking place with the the Lord, the way he's dealing with his people. He's developing and shaping a people for himself. And that's why the verse starts this way, for a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. That is from doing anything about your plight, being under this foreign captivity and under my chastening. I haven't done anything for a long time. God's people would have to wait a long time for the fulfillment of these promises. They would languish in captivity, as I said, for 70 years. And you too will have to wait so often for the fulfillment of God's promises and purposes in your life. You know, God's purposes have a kind of gestational period in which they are being formed in secret, being shaped and developed. But the day will come when God will bring forth his good purposes. It may be a long time. It was a long time for them. And you know, the the long time here, I believe, is actually looking beyond just merely the 70 years that they would have to wait in captivity under the judgment of God before they would be delivered. Because these promises, all through this section, actually see beyond the mere restoration of the people to Jerusalem under King Cyrus. They see that... Isaiah sees that clearly, but he sees beyond that prophetically. Because the prophets 
predicted, for example, the return of God's people to the promised land, right? But the ultimate reality is that all of God's people are strangers and exiles in this hostile world looking for that heavenly country, as the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, in which we will come into our home and be with the Lord. The true temple of God will dwell with man forever. So we're seeing a near future, but we're also seeing beyond. And so that long time where we're waiting for the promises of God is a, is a, is a further time. Or, for example, consider that the prophets prophesied that the temple would be rebuilt, and they were going to have to wait for that. But when it was rebuilt, you remember what happened? They looked at the temple, the people who remembered the former temple, they looked at the new temple, and they said, this is like nothing in our eyes. And the prophets stood up and they said, oh, listen to this. God yet once more is going to shake the heavens and the earth, and this temple that you see will be filled with more glory than any temple ever that came before. And what did they do? They waited. (laughs) Because... God's purposes were still in that gestational period. They waited and waited and waited until one came who said, tear down the temple and I will rebuild it in what? Three days. And he did, right? So Isaiah sees something, but he sees that as a lens through which to see something else. Or consider how the prophets, Isaiah, for example, prophesied in chapter 45, verse 1, that the promises of God would be fulfilled through God's Messiah, the Persian King Cyrus. You know that Cyrus was literally called God's Messiah. God's anointed. But of course, everything in this passage envisions the great and singular Messiah of God who would come at the appointed time to bring the ultimate salvation for God's people. It wasn't Messiah Cyrus that would bring them into the land of rest. It was Messiah Jesus who would bring all his people into their eternal rest. And so the Lord says, wait, it is for a long time I held my peace. And the Lord would. He would allow his purposes to be at work. And the whole image, of course, is to encourage here God's people to persevere in faith, waiting, hoping for the birth of those promises. The Bible says that the whole creation right now is groaning together in pain. And of course we say, yeah, I know that. But you know what kind of pain it is? He says it's the pain of childbirth. And he says that if we hope for what we do not yet see, then we wait for it with what? With endurance, with patience. That's what this image is supposed to say. there, The Lord is going to bring forth for you. And for a long time, He's going he's to hold back, and you're going to have to wait, and you're going to have to trust. And that's the way it is for us if we're thinking of the ultimate outcome, outworking of God's purposes for us in glory, or if you're thinking about the outworking of God's purposes in your life individually as a Christian, the Lord will bring them forth, but it will come in His time And verse 15 just reminds us that God is able to overcome any obstacle, right? Verse 15, you see that? I mean, He's able to flatten any mountain or hill, just lay it waste. He's able to dry up any body of water that blocks the path of God's people from going home. 
just like he dried up the river Jordan so they could enter into the promised land all those years ago, just like he dried up the Red Sea so they could cross through on dry ground. The Lord is mighty. He's able to do this. And then verse 16, though the people were like blind people wandering around in the dark, like there's no way they could see how to get themselves out from under this situation. Yet the Lord Himself, He says, would guide them and would bring them onto a level path. Can you picture that? A blind person in a dark room, but here is someone taking them by the hand and moving the obstacles out of the way and leading them to where He wants them to be. That's what the Lord does for His people. Verse 16, the end of the verse says, these, take a look, these are things that I do and I do not, what does it say? I do not forsake them. What a sweet word from God, isn't it? For those who are truly His, you can hold on to this truth about your God. He does not forsake you. Consider the hope that that gave those people under the discipline of God. I mean, it's one thing to to just know things aren't going bad, things aren't going well, but it's another thing that things are going badly because you've sinned against your God. And what do you think about God in that moment? You know what I think? I think God is up there saying, I'm tired of you. I'm done with you. You get what you deserve. But the Lord says to His true people, I will not forsake you. So precious a word from the Lord. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him, for the Lord will not cast him off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Amen? That one's worth memorizing, by the way. That's Lamentations 3. Do you need that this morning? Do you need that word from the Lord? Maybe sometimes you've felt like the psalmist in Psalm 77. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will He never again be favorable to me? Has His steadfast love ceased? Honestly, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever wondered to yourself, I wonder, I fear, am I finally abandoned by God? Has He finally just said, you're on your own. Hear the word of the Lord who says, I will not forsake them. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not. I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. That's the Lord speaking to His people here in this passage. And he never forsook his true people, his believing remnant, even in all of their years of, of judgment. They were in captivity those 70 long years. 
But those 70 years were intended by God to chasten and to discipline them, to train them, to purify them. But for that to happen, they're going to need to consider the cause of their suffering. That's what we see secondly in verses 18 to 25. The cause of their suffering, the Lord begins in verse 18 just saying, Hear, you deaf. Let's just think about that for a minute. Hear, you deaf. And look, you blind, that you may see. What kind of command is that? Well, I think on the one hand, it's critical irony. Instructing people to do what is actually impossible for them to do. You know the Lord does that? That He instructs you to do what is impossible for you to do? But it is, on the other hand, a miracle working command. Look, you blind eyes, and hear, you deaf ears. I mean, this is as the Lord spoke to a dead man in a tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Or to a lame man, take up your bed and walk. These, there is a power that comes within those commands themselves to an entirely powerless people. And then the Lord addresses their blindness in verse 19. These people who needed a miracle of spiritual sight, he says to them, who is blind but my what servant? Now this is not the singular servant, the Messiah, Christ, but the collective typological servant, Israel. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Why would you tell your message to a deaf messenger? How will it ever get communicated? And of course, Israel was supposed to be God's messengers, the messengers of God's righteousness and holiness and goodness to a a lost world. But they were deaf to hear His voice and meaningless messengers. Who is blind, he says, as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. In other words, why are these people suffering? Why are they in captivity? Why are they in a foreign land and their city lies in ruins and their temple is desecrated? Why? Because of their own spiritual blindness because of their own unwillingness to listen, to apprehend what God had been revealing to these people over and over and over through His prophets. They needed to consider why they were suffering. And in verse 21, the Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake. Verse 21, the Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to magnify His law and make it glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. There's a contrast here, isn't there, between what God intended these people to be in giving them His law and what they actually were because of their unwillingness to hear it. And and the background, of course, for all of this is in Deuteronomy. Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5, See... I have taught you statutes and rules. That's what's being addressed here, isn't it? The Lord gave His... um, He was pleased to magnify His law and to make it glorious. Moses said, I have taught you statutes and rules 
as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you should do them in the land to which you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them, keep God's laws, and do them for that, the doing of them, will be your wisdom and your understanding. Now notice the next words. That will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who, when they hear all of the statutes that I've given to you, they will say something. They will say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. Why? Because of the law of God that they possessed, that they gave ear to, that they obeyed. It would be an example, a magnetic example to all of the peoples to come to Jerusalem and worship the one true and living God. That was the way it was supposed to work with the law of God in the midst of the people of Israel. But because of their blindness and their deafness to the word of God, what was their situation? Well, they are looted and plundered captives. And the nations look at them now, and what do the nations say now? Who wants that? Right? What kind of nation is that? What kind of people are those? And many, many a Christian has had times of blindness and turning a deaf ear to what God has spoken. And because of that, finds himself under God's chastening, God's discipline rather than the blessing and the joy that God intended him and his life to be, his family, his church, to be that which attracts. And instead, it's that which you look at and and you feel sorry for the people or you turn away from them. But it's because they brought it upon themselves. That's what the Lord says about his people. And to such people, he asks two questions, beginning in verse 23. Who among you will give ear to this and will listen, attend and listen for what? For the, for the time to come. What I'm doing right now in this time of chastening, the Lord says, who's paying attention to this? Who's seeing what I'm doing? If you, if you really see what I'm doing right now while I'm chastening you, it'll have a good effect for the time to come. God is trying to teach you something in your chastening. Will you learn it? For the moment, the Scripture says, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are what? Well, to those who are trained by it. To those who learn from it. That's what the Lord's saying. Who will learn from what I'm doing to you? John Calvin admonished his readers, let us learn what is the use of threatenings and punishments. For God does not reprove our crimes or punish us for them as if he delighted in taking vengeance or demanded some recompense, but that we may be on our guard for the time to come. That's what the Lord was doing for these people. And it may be what the Lord is doing for you in a time of chastening, discipline. And you know what your response and my response ought to be in those times? Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to expose in my life? 
What are you trying to cut away? What are you trying to encourage? What are you trying to shape? Where do I need to be different from where I am today? Do you honestly ask yourself those kinds of questions? Do you find yourself in a situation like this? And but for that question, even to be on our minds, okay, we have to answer a second question. Verse 24. Who, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? You see the question? Who's behind your suffering right now? Who's behind it? And the Lord answers his own question. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The answer to the question, who is behind your suffering? Is the Lord himself. God was behind their suffering. And he was instituting this suffering as a judgment, as a discipline of these people. And I want to just ask, do you and I, consider that reality when we experience unusual suffering? Do you consider the reality that this is of the Lord when you are under His chastening hand? And you know, think about the different ways that the Lord does chasten His people. If you're a child here, a young person, maybe that God brings His chastening into your life through the rebuke of a parent, through the punishment that they bring into your life because of disobedience. God brings His chastening upon His people through the church. He brings chastening through the rebuke of loving brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and through pastoral Correction. I'm asking you again. Do you stop and consider who's behind this? He brings it through church discipline even sometimes. Through the correction of the entire body. He can chasten his people through the civil magistrate who is called the servant of God. And he is certainly capable of chastening his people directly. He can bring his chastening in a way that exposes the sinfulness of his people, leaving us to our own devices in the face of grave temptation or bringing affliction and misery into our lives, into our, into our situation, perhaps just allowing us to experience the unmitigated consequences of our own sinfulness, our own sinful choices, and He just lets all of the weight of that come crashing down on us. 
we feel like it's all going to crush us and we say, what's going on? This is not fair. Why is this happening? You know the Lord wants you to consider? Who's behind this? Who is at work in your providences? Right? When things are going well, let me ask you this. When you experience unexpected joy, kindness that, that just surprises you, what do you say? This, let me tell you about the providence of God in my life. Right? But do we understand? Are we willing to come to grips with the fact that God is behind all the providences in our lives? And that He can use those things, and often does, as His chastening rod. Paul said, for example, that some of the people in the Corinthian church were gravely ill, and some had even been taken in death as a a judgment of God upon their sinfulness. Do you understand that? Are we so materialistic, naturalistic and materialistic that we we say there is you know it's just a matter of cells in my body doing their thing and germs and microbes and all of the thing do we understand are we all willing to say let me look behind this providence and see that there is a god behind it and that what he may be doing in my life is bringing me under his chastening disciplining training hand This is not to say, in fact, John 9 makes it clear that not all sickness is a direct result of some particular sin. But are we sensitive enough to ask the question, Lord, what are you doing in my life? When you're under discipline, I mean, instead of just being annoyed at your parents, can you say, God, what are you trying to do? Instead of just cursing your bad circumstances and your bad luck, do you have eyes to see that this may be your God at work in your life? This is exactly the question that's being posed to the people of God. What it ought to do is to move us to get on our knees and say, Oh God, do what you will. Cleanse me. Purify me. Expose what needs to be exposed. Break what needs to be broken. Take away what needs to be taken away. Just do whatever it takes to shape me into the image of Christ. And for those people who are truly the Lord's, who are sensitive, who, who are, are literally asking these very questions in those times, the Lord ends with, once again, coming back to an assurance of His grace for them. And we are out of time to really work through it. We'll save it for next week, but let's read together this great assurance that the Lord does give to His true people. Verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. Think of what that means. You are mine. And so when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, now stop there for a minute. When did you just see fire in this text? Chapter 42, verse 26, the very last verse. And who was it that set them on fire? Who was it? It was God. And now he says, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. The Lord did not bring this upon his people to consume them, but to purify them. And verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored. I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. The Lord promised a sweet return of His people to a place of blessing. This is the promise that every one of God's true children can hold on to. And listen, hold on to even when they are suffering because of their own blindness and deafness, their own waywardness, when they're being left by God to the consequences of their own sinful choices. Even then they can say, the Lord is my hope. Okay? Now, once again, I'm, 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 I'm concerned that no one misappropriate this and say to himself, well, I can sin and do what I want because I am the Lord's. No, for someone who says that is not the Lord's, he doesn't know the Lord in any kind of loving way. But I am saying for those who are sensitive to God and what God is doing, even seeing the, the judgment of God upon them for their own sins, they can say, the Lord will not forsake me. Though He sends His fire to burn me, I will not be consumed, for I am His. And you know, I want to conclude this way. Whenever, whenever Christians are facing the chastening of God, the judgment of God, the tendency, even knowing that there's a good God at work, the tendency is to respond in one of two sinful ways. And the writer of Hebrews spells this out in Hebrews 12 that we read earlier. The tendency is to respond in one of two sinful ways. On the one hand, there's a temptation to despise the Lord for His chastening. To despise it. To say, what is God doing? How can He do this to me? Why is He abandoning me? Why is He letting all this happen? And of course, the answer is, He's chastening you. If you're his child, he's chastening you because he loves you. For the Lord disciplines every son whom he receives. The other temptation is to be weary at his reproof. To be weary. To just come to the point where a, a saint of God says, uh, or is tempted to say, the Lord's abandoned me. He's just abandoned me completely. He's given up on me. So I guess I'll just give up on him. Just to be weary and to fall away. The temptation 
what is God doing? Not abandoning you. When, when he brings this chastening and the, the, this, this discipline in your life, what is he? He's not abandoning you. He's working in you. He's shaping you. He's forming you. He's correcting you. And time will prove the good work of God and you will bring forth. And the purposes of God will come to their fruition in the progress of sanctification in your life. Amen? That's what the Lord's doing. God's discipline will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who allow themselves to be trained by it. So, brother and sister, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, what's sick and broken and sinful, may not be utterly put out of joint, but rather be healed by the gracious discipline of the Lord. What a God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, now Lord, you know how it is that we needed to hear this today, and we pray that you would make application of this to the lives of your people, and that you would bring us to a greater experience of holiness and sanctification. We pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.